All right. So uh, if you were not here last week, we have begun a four-week series on the book of Ruth. So today we're in Ruth chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, your phones, uh, if you pull that out, we'll be in Ruth chapter 2 today. One chapter a week, four chapters in the book means it's going to be over pretty fast. So most of you guys have probably read the book of Ruth before, but there's a lot there uh, that speaks to our context today as we watch the main characters uh, interact with the situations that they were in. But just to recap just a little bit, one of our main characters uh, is Naomi. So Naomi was living in the land of Moab. This is in chapter one uh, for about 10 years. And over the course of 10 years, her husband dies and then both of her sons die. Um, Her sons were married, but they didn't leave her with any grandchildren. And so she has two daughter-in-laws and she decides she's going to go back home to Bethlehem. And one of her daughter-in-laws, Orpah, decides to stay in Moab, which it's, it's a fun fact that that actually is Oprah's real name. So if you ever want to look up the story, that's just kind of fun. Orpah, Oprah. So, um, uh, but Ruth decides that she says, I will, go, I will go with you. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm going to leave Moab. I'm going to leave my parents. And she makes that wonderful declaration in chapter one, that your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my God. It's an incredible statement of commitment. And so we see, we end chapter one on kind of a low note. So we have these two widows, essentially, who are fairly vulnerable um, at that point in time uh, in that world. And uh, Naomi comes back, and when the people see her, she says, call me bitter, because the Lord's hand, uh, I feel like the Lord's hand has essentially been against me. And so you have these, uh, these two ladies that are in Bethlehem, and it points us to this question. How do you respond when you experience hardship? So how do you respond when you experience hardship? And uh, that's what we see starting to play out in chapter two. If chapter one's kind of a low point, it's like, what do you do when you're at a low point? And that's my question for you and for me today. And I'm not talking about just kind of a low point. I mean, like really a low point where it's like, it's one thing if one bad thing happens, but when one thing happens and then another happens and then another happens and you use all the energy you can to stand up. And just as you stand up, another wave knocks you down. And then you kind of get up again, and then another wave knocks you down. And I'm not just talking about a little bit of hardship. I'm talking about ongoing hardship or back-to-back hardship. And I think if you live long enough, um, you'll experience a season of life like that. You may be in a season of life like that right now. COVID, I think, was a season of life um, like that for most of us as a community and and as as a world. So... What do you do? How do you respond when you experience hardship? I I have just a few examples to prime the pump. You might have a go-to response when it comes to hardship in your life, ongoing hardship. Do you get bitter? Do you get bitter? Do you become extremely positive? Are you that person who's just like so incredibly positive, like crazy positive whenever things happen? Do you dwell on the negative? Do you give up? Do you double down as far as working hard? Do you wait for someone to rescue you? Do you get angry at God and doubt God's character? Do you run away? Are you the kind of person that runs away when things get gets hard? Are you good at grieving? Are you good at grieving? I know one of the uh, one of the couple of the elements that are dealt with in the book of Ruth are hope and despair. 
powerful, powerful themes to think about hope and despair. Uh, Proverbs 13.12, I didn't give you guys this as a reference, but Proverbs 13.12 says, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Powerful verse, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. You may have been there before. You know that. It's not just something in your head. It's something you felt in your heart, something that you hoped for for a long time, and your heart feels sick. Again, you may be there today. Um, When you experience hardship, how do you respond? Do you take it out on other people? Do you take it out on innocent people? Do you close yourself off to the relationships of the people in your life? Do you kick yourself for the bad decisions that you should have made and dwell in the past? It's in these times when we're squeezed, not only when our character is revealed, but when our character is forged. So if you would, if you'd like to stand with me, I would invite you to stand with me. And when you stand, I would like to invite you to find a comfortable position to stand in because we're going to read all of chapter two and, um, and it takes a minute. So we're going to see how our main characters respond, but also be thinking about how you respond. How do you normally respond? How do you wish you would respond to hardship and What does the Bible tell us is a biblical response to ongoing hardship? So, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. Elimelech was Naomi's husband. And this man's name was Boaz. Ruth, the Moabitess, asked Naomi... Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, Go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived in Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they said. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, Whose young woman is this? The servant answered, She's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked us, Will you let me gather fallen grain uh, among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go to gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they're harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars um, the young men have filled. So she fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you, so that you notice me? Although I'm a foreigner, Boaz answered her, everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you did not previously know. May the Lord, may Yahweh restore you for what you've done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you, for you've comforted and encouraged your servant, although I'm not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters, 
and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you gather barley today, and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law, whom she had worked with, and said, The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May the Lord bless him, because he's not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, The man is a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also told me, Stay with my young men until they've finished all my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it's good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Just a brief prayer. Lord, we go through seasons where when we pray to you, we say, How long, O Lord? And we need you to meet us in those seasons. We need you to set our minds on what is true. We need you to give us strength. We need you to rescue. We need you to do the things that we're not capable of doing and that we don't have the power to do. So help us to learn today a little more about how to engage with these seasons of life. And I pray that you would not only teach us as individuals, but you would teach us as a church body, and that we would speak truth into each other's lives for the glory of your name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So uh, there's three points that I'd like to make today, and... um, We'll have them all up on the screen so you know where we're going. How do you respond when you experience hardship? Three points that I'd like to make that I believe come out of this text are, one, you can do what you can. You can do what you can where you are with what you have. That's what we see Ruth doing. There was a lot Ruth couldn't do, but there was a little bit that she could. Do what you can where you are with what you have. Behave as if God is the only one watching and choose to believe that God is good no matter what. So the first point there, do what you can where you are with what you have. There are times in life where life uh, beats you down, and you you feel like your options are limited. And in those seasons of life, you can be tempted to focus on all that you've lost and all that you can't do as opposed to what you can do. Because what you can do is not enough to fix the situation. So sometimes you think, well, why try? Why do the little that I can do if it's not going to change my situation? I think Ruth might have felt the same way. But one thing that Ruth could do is Ruth could go to work. 
That's one thing that was in her power and in her control, and that's one thing we see her doing in chapter 2. So if you want to write down verse 7, verse 15, and verse 17. Verse 7, verse 15, and verse 17. This is what I see her doing. I see her getting up early in the morning and going to work. I see her taking a couple of breaks, and then I see her going to work after she takes breaks. And I see her day not ending until the evening. I see her doing what she's capable of doing. Um, there's a girl I know who is uh, a missionary uh, here actually in North America. And she, she used to, I don't know if she does anymore, but she used to send out a newsletter like a lot of folks do. And the banner of her newsletter, at the top of the newsletter, it says, she did what she could. She did what she could. And that phrase kind of grabbed me, and I was like, is that a scripture verse, or where is she getting that from? But the, uh, the reference for that is Mark 14.8. Mark 14.8, it's in reference to the story where there's a lady who comes in where Jesus is, and she breaks an alabaster, uh, a white um, jar of perfume, and she anoints Jesus' head with it. And there's a very small part of a sentence where it says, she did what she could. There may have been a lot that she couldn't do, but this was something that she could do. And I think I appreciate that phrase because I appreciate hearing something like that, and I go, I can do that. I can do that. Um, Sometimes when you're in a season of extended hardship, you need something really simple. And that's something you can do. You can do what you can so two, two quotes, these aren't necessarily from the Bible, they're just as far as, as I've dwelt with this passage throughout the week, um, just to share with you. Don't let what you can't do keep you from doing what you can do. Don't let what you don't have capture your focus. Because it's real easy to focus. I don't know if it's just human nature or what it is, but it's real easy to focus on what we can't do and what we don't have. So push against that. And even if your best is not enough to fix the problem, do it anyway. God has a habit of taking our meager contributions and making more out of them. Uh, Even if you just think of the the boy who brought the fish and the loaves and Jesus feeds 5,000. One example, another example that comes to mind of this uh, in the course of the last five years or so, I don't know when it was, but I met a guy who's uh, from Africa. He's a refugee here in Nashville. And, you know, he experienced a lot of hardship in Africa, and he finally makes it to America. And it's like, all right, life's going to get better. And in a lot of ways, I think life got harder for him. Just had the hardest time finding a job. And he was a pretty educated guy. And in the apartment complex where he lived, he was surrounded by people that weren't really lifting him up. Uh, The examples were more ones that bring you down. Uh, Just seemed like everywhere he looked, other people didn't have a lot going on, so they would just kind of drink and watch TV. And so he couldn't get a job, but what he could do was volunteer. And so that's what he did. He went to work. It might have been like a Habitat for Humanity house or something like that. There was a lot that he couldn't do, but there were a few things that he could. And what he could do didn't necessarily fix his problem, but he did what he could. In his case, eventually that led to a job. You know, lots of times one thing leads to another. But I was really proud of him for not just saying, uh, I'm just going to give up. 
there was something that he could do, however small it was. And, and he did it. Because the, the truth is in life, you go through seasons where sometimes, sometimes all you can do is just be faithful. And you wake up, and you're faithful to the Lord all day, and, and you go to sleep, and nothing really changes. And you wake up the next day, and you're faithful to the Lord all day, and you go to sleep, and nothing really changes. And you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. A wash, rinse, and repeat. Um, maybe you just need to know two things. One, that's actually kind of normal. And if it feels hard, it's because it is hard. Um, but you keep doing it. And I do think it's appropriate if you, wanna, if you want for further study or further prayer, two prayers in the Psalms where, where the psalmist pray, How long, O Lord? are Psalm 13 and Psalm 40. And maybe those are prayers that you need to pray. Maybe you just need somebody to help you pray. Psalm 13 and Psalm 40 both say, how long, O Lord? And they give us an example of how to express our heart to God in these seasons where I'm being faithful, I'm being faithful, I'm being faithful, but nothing seems to be changing. But that's what Ruth is doing. Ruth is being faithful. In her case, things changed quicker than sometimes is the case in our life. But the second thing I'd like to point out when you're in an extended season of hardship is you want to behave as if God is the only one watching. There's a lot of different ways you can say that. Uh, You want to act for an audience of one. I like that phrase, an audience of one. But behave as if God is the only one watching. A couple of things this reminds me of. Uh, You may recall in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, okay? The first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you pray and when you fast and when you do your good deeds, in all three of these cases, you're supposed to do it for your Father who sees in secret, and he will reward you. And Jesus teaches us as his followers that that's the way we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live in such a way where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. I talked some with Matt Worley about this. It's not something I've heard a lot, but it's the practice of obscurity. Do you have the ability to do something for someone else that was kind of a sacrifice on your part and have no one find out about it and still be okay with that? Or do you need someone to kind of clap a little bit? Do you, are you able to practice the spiritual habit of obscurity? And one of the things that hardship does a lot of the time is it puts us in a season where we are kind of in obscurity. And lots of times the only people that see the way you think and the way you act is you and God. And that is when you develop integrity. If integrity is doing the right thing, when no one is watching, then lots of times during seasons of hardship, that is one thing that you have the opportunity to do is develop integrity. That's when character is forged. But I'll tell you something else that I find extremely encouraging about doing the right thing. And I haven't always been aware of this verse. It's uh, 1 Timothy 5, 24 through 25. 1 Timothy 5, 24 through 25, that good deeds actually can't be hidden. If you're doing the right thing, it actually can't be hidden. So 
This is, as you know, this is Timothy. This is Timothy, right? So this is Paul writing to Timothy. This is an older man writing to a younger man. And we need the older people in our life to speak truth into us. We need that. And this is what Paul is doing. He says, I'm going to make an analogy, okay? So go with me on this, if you will. Um, Some people's sins are obvious, and they precede them to judgment. But the sins of some other people, they're not as obvious. But eventually they bubble up, right? The truth comes out. Now, that's a negative way of saying it. In the same manner, likewise, verse 25 There's good works are obvious. Some good works are obvious, but some good works that you do in secret when only God sees and nobody else sees, those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. They cannot remain hidden. And so I think that gives me a lot of encouragement. That gives me a lot of encouragement to say, God sees what I'm doing when I'm in a season of hardship. And sometimes it can feel like, well, why should I even try it's because he's watching and because he sees. Now, if we make our way back to the story of Ruth, one of the things I see about Ruth is that her reputation has preceded her. So in the same way, her character, even if she was super quiet about her character, eventually that's going to bubble up and that's going to get out. And that's what we see saying. So that's what we see happening in the story. So back in chapter 2, um, Ruth's reputation has preceded her and you, you may have got this the first time you read the passage, okay? But in verse 10 and 11, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, have you ever asked yourself, why did Ruth find favor with Boaz? There's a lot of things we can read into the story. Did, she, did he think she was good looking? Did she have a catching personality? Um, did she come from a family of means? No, not really. There's all these things you can either make up or wonder about, you know, because this is a relationship story and it's a love story and everybody loves the book of Ruth. Um, but the reason that Boaz says that Ruth found favor in her sight was because of her character. He says in verse 11, it's because of what I heard you did for your mother-in-law. That's why you found favor in my sight. Later on in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 11, Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz says to Ruth, he says, all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. And if I can speak to the relationship component of the book of Ruth just for a second, I can't help but wonder if like attracts like. You may have heard that phrase before. Birds of a feather flock together. Like attracts like. So the Bible is pretty clear in the book of Ruth that Ruth is a person of noble character. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz is described as a man of means, He's described as a, as a man of prominence, but it also says that he is a person of noble character. So we have two people of noble character. Um, and I wonder if Boaz sees in Ruth a kindred spirit. And part of, I think part of the character, one of just, I just want to share this with you guys because I thought it was pretty encouraging. I think one of the aspects of both of their character that's pointed out is kindness. I love the word kindness. Um, Naomi points out Boaz's kindness in chapter 2, verse 20. In verse 20 of chapter 2, 
Naomi says, Boaz's kindness, he's not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead, because Naomi kind of thought of herself as as good as dead, essentially. Um, And then we look at the kindness of Ruth. Really cool observation with Ruth. If you look at verse 14 and verse 18, in verse 14, Ruth has a big lunch, and she has leftovers, and she saves them. Okay? And then in verse 18, there's this little bitty snippet where it says she gave her leftovers to her mother-in-law. Super cool. Super small. Who saw that? Who saw that? Her, her mother-in-law, and God. That's it. But she did it because she's a person of character. Um, later, we'll, we'll look next week at chapter 3. But if you were, again, to look at chapter 3, verse 10... When Ruth essentially in the story lets Boaz know that she would be interested in marrying him, Boaz says, this kindness is greater than the first kindness. In some translations, he says, this second kindness is greater than the first. Um, The first kindness is what she did for her mother-in-law, and the second kindness is the fact that she would be willing to marry a man that was a little bit older than her, when she could have chosen guys that were closer to her age. That's what Boaz is pointing out there. But the point is kindness. And I'd like to think that Boaz knows that the way somebody treats other people is the way they're eventually going to treat you. And if you look at the way people treat strangers or family members or the wait staff at a restaurant or anybody who doesn't have any sort of prominence or power, that's the way they're eventually going to treat you. And when you find someone of noble character, you latch on to them. And so Proverbs 31 wasn't written yet, but Proverbs 31 describes a woman of noble character. It says, who can find a person like this? And if you find a person like that, you latch on to them because it's a big deal. So a couple of things we can do when we go through seasons of hardship. The second one being behave as if God is the only one watching. And the third thing is to choose to believe that God is good no matter what. To choose to believe that God is good no matter what. A couple of comments here. When you're in an extended season of hardship... Um, one of the biggest things you're tempted to do is doubt God's character. And if you walk with the Lord long enough, eventually you will experience this season. You will be tempted to doubt God's character, to wonder if he's good, to wonder if he's holding out on you. Um, You might start hearing in your spirit saying, well, if I was God, I would never let that happen. You start hearing stuff like that. What's happening is God is revealing an idol in your heart. He's revealing something that you care about more than you care about him. But eventually, God's either going to cause something in your life, he's going to allow something in your life, or he's going to take something out of your life, and you're going to be faced with the choice to either keep calling him good or start calling him bad. It's going to, it happens to all of us. And he's revealing the things that we love more than we love him. And sometimes we go through seasons where... We have to lead our hearts. Our hearts taking us in one direction, but the truth of Scripture says something else. And sometimes you have to lead your heart. You have to force yourself to pray things that you know that are true, even though 
you may not entirely feel them in hopes that eventually you will because you trust that his word is true. And so Ruth is trusting in Yahweh for deliverance. And even if he takes things away, I will still call him good. When Ruth in chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, when Ruth says, your God will be my God, she's basically saying that Yahweh is the God that I serve now. And Boaz affirms this in chapter 2, verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says, you've come under his wings for protection. You know, Boaz is the one that the provision's coming through, but Boaz recognizes the fact that Ruth is waiting on the Lord for deliverance. It's a similar language. It's an interesting analogy. Usually, I don't know if it's more of a feminine analogy, but when you think of like a mother hen, I mean, you even use the word mother hen, you know, under the wings, you got the chicks under the wings. It's interesting um, that this can be used in a masculine way. Jesus actually uses it in the New Testament when at one point he looks at the city of Jerusalem and says, how long have I wanted to gather you under my wings? Jesus actually personifies him as a mother hen, if you will. How long if I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you weren't willing to come under them for protection. But Ruth is doing what she can, and she's waiting on the Lord. So I want to point out, I want to make, I want to make one thing clear, okay? I want to make one thing clear. The story of Ruth is great because it has a really happy ending. But one thing I don't want to communicate is that if you follow this formula, everything will work out. I don't want to communicate that, that if you follow this formula, everything will work out. Because there's plenty of examples in the Bible where Jesus delivered people, and there's plenty of examples in the Bible where he didn't. People that he didn't heal. People that, I guess you could say ultimately they were delivered, but maybe weren't delivered from their chronic pain or their family situation, or whatever it was. One of the biggest examples uh, of that to me is Hebrews 11, 36 through 38. Uh, I didn't give you guys that passage, but Hebrews 11, 36 through 38, it's got, that's called the hall of faith, right? And all of chapter 11 is all these people that had faith. And some of them got to walk through the Red Sea, and some of them got to see people come back to life, and some people were delivered from the mouth of lions. But there's this really small section, these um, couple of verses, Hebrews 11, 36 through 38, where some of those people, other people, were they had just as much faith as the other people, but they were sawn in half. They had just as much faith as, as the other people, but they were killed by the sword. And I love the fact that the Bible says, of these people, the world is not worthy. So God has high praise for people that say, though he slay me, yet I will believe in him. Even if God doesn't deliver us, he's still good. It's the spirit of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 that says God has the power to deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, he's still good. And we're going to still obey him no matter what. This is dropping down even a, even a, a level deeper. So I want to leave you with um, a one example of how to wrestle well with God. So Job, many of you probably read the book of Job. Job chapter 13, verse 15. 
Job chapter 13, verse 15 says, Even if he kills me, I will hope in him, but I will still defend my ways before him. I think I memorized this in the ESV. It says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And then I like the second part of the verse a lot. Okay, Yet I will argue my ways to his face. So you can leave this verse up for a minute if you want to, but I want to leave this with you guys as a template for how to wrestle well with God. It's interesting, the idea of wrestling well with God. You know, Jacob wrestled with God, and then after Jacob wrestled with God, he changed his name to Israel. And the name Israel means wrestles with God, an entire nation. Um, There's something about that I think that's important, of not only wrestling with God, but knowing how to wrestle with God well and how to wrestle with God Um, respectfully. So whatever God does is good. And if my suffering is what he deems best, then so be it. At the end of the day, God God gets to make the final decision. All right, I like this. At the end of the day, God gets to make the final decision. But in the middle of the day, I'm going to tell him how I feel about it. Okay, And that's what I see Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus does two things. He lets God know how he feels, and he lets God know what he would prefer. He says, Father, I'm in agony, and I would prefer for this cup to pass from me. I will still defend my ways before you in the ESV, yet I will argue my ways to your face. I want, God wants, you can, you can tell God how you feel. You can tell God how you prefer. But at the end of the day, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your be done. Your will be done. Which means that we say, we take it even this far, that even if he decides that my death or my ongoing suffering, if that's what's going to be best for his kingdom, then so be it. And I take my submission to him even to that degree. I think when you look at Naomi at the end of chapter one, I think she does a decent job. If you're being generous with Naomi, I don't know that she ever out and out calls Yahweh bad. I mean, she kind of says, he made me bitter. It's kind of cool. If you reread the end of chapter one, maybe you can kind of judge for yourself how good of a job she's doing with wrestling and maybe expressing uh, her situation to the Lord in prayer. Um, She's definitely struggling. But uh, it's good to see that not all the characters in the Bible are perfect, because not all of us are perfect either. We're all trying. So I'd like to remind you of these three points. There's a lot of different things you can do when you experience hardship, but do what you can, where you are with what you have, behave as if God is the only one watching, and then choose. You do have a choice. You can choose. Choose to believe that God is good no matter what. So our worship team can go ahead and come up. And as they're coming up, I'd like to read over you and over myself two really powerful scriptures. Uh, These scriptures may have come to your mind even during this season of COVID, the last year plus that we've been through. Uh, You can write them down if you'd like, but one is 1 Peter 4.19. 1 Peter 4.19. The other one is Habakkuk 3.17-19. Habakkuk 3.17-19. So I'll read, these, uh, I'll read these passages over us. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator 
while doing what is good, or some translations say while continuing to do what is good. In that passage, we see an unswerving belief that God is good, that he is trustworthy. I'm going to continue to do what's right. And then this next verse, which is just deep. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit and the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Even if there's no signs of blessings, I have made a choice. In the same way that Ruth made a choice to cling to Naomi, we make the choice to cling to our God and say, no matter what, no matter what he does, I trust him. So let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we, uh, again, we pray that you would take these truths and help us, to, help us to apply them, help us to pray better, change our hearts, change our thinking. You tell us that we're, uh, when we renew our mind, things begin to change. Help us to wrestle well with you, respectfully but honestly, Help us to speak into each other's lives, especially those of us who are older and have more experience like Paul did with Timothy. Um, But we thank you that through it all, and we want to declare this, that you are Emmanuel, you're God with us. Whatever we go through, as long as we know you're with us, it's bearable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.